Hello and welcome to East Drop and Get the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about Cool Hand Luke today. Yes. A new film for the both of us. Neither of us have seen this. Yes. Now the reason I've not seen this is obvious. I've not seen anything that is classic or well known or that I should have seen. You, on the other hand, how did you miss this? Uh, I have a I have a gap, I think. You know, basically like late 60s, early 70s films. You know, there's a lot of them that uh, that I haven't seen, and I think it just basically has to do with where I was born and when I was born. I like I was born in '62, so you know these are films that I would have been too young to go see, and also they would have been too new to show on television. Mm. You know, and basically by the time that they were probably shown on television, I wasn't watching television. You know, because I think there was there was a whole period from my teens until really 30 or something where. I just didn't watch television, you know, you watch the news, but you're basically going out every night doing social things or, mm. you know, going to the movies or going to parties or, out, you know, so, so, so there's a gap. I mean, there's a whole area, that area of cinema, which I find I'm kind of constantly c- catching up on. I've, I've just not seen them. Yeah. yeah. Which is the kind of turn of, of Hollywood into new Hollywood age. I suppose so, except, you know, by the time, so all of the films that are considered new Hollywood... Like, obviously, like, The Godfather and uh, a Network and Cabaret and... Jaws. Uh, well, Jaws is later. I think Jaws okay. almost is, like, introducing another area. But anyway, all of those films I did see in the cinema, actually. Right. Because by that point, I was either 14 or, yeah, like, yeah. you know, or they were shown on television. I mean, I remember The Godfather being this huge production. It was turned into a miniseries and joined together the two parts, and it was a big deal. Right. In, in my elementary school. So that's getting into the 70s, but in this late 60s period. Yeah, so so it depends also how you define the new Hollywood. But yes, that period of, you know, things like uh, Bonnie and Clyde, I, I took years to see that, actually. Mm. You know, so, so yes, those films from about 67 to like 71 is like a gap. Yeah. I think the film looks fantastic, really, and it's a joy to watch. And Paul Newman is fantastic, and the whole cast is really, uh, you know, on point. But actually, I'm beginning to think that it's one of those films that I enjoyed watching it much more than I expected to. Mm. But actually, it's kind of it's diminishing in my mind the more I think about it. <laughs> I know what you mean. I think it feels kind of thin. I think I said to you early on, wouldn't this look amazing in a cinema? Yes. The composition and framing and design of a lot of the look, especially early on when you're being introduced to the prison and, and the situation and everything, I think is amazing. A lot of authority figures are shot feet first. The camera's close to the ground and who and Paul Newman, typically, is on the ground. And then someone's feet come into frame mm. and they frame him completely. And like, imagine how that would look in the cinema. You know, we're watching it on a TV and it's great, but. It looks amazing. But the thing is that it looks amazing, but in a superficial way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, you know, so the intent or, you know, what comes across is a kind of a coolness, but it's almost like an advertising type coolness, right? <laughs> yeah, that it's just like a cool image. But actually, you know, what that image is expressing kind of dramatically. Yeah, there's a loss of complexity or a feeling. And it, it actually, to me, in a way, also, it doesn't feel true. So if you, you know, if the whole thing is about cool hand Luke, 
where's the nobility in that resistance, right? Because you're meant to see it as yeah, resistance itself being noble, mm. right? Like, you know, he's linked almost to Jesus as a sacrificial figure. I don't think it's almost. I mean, okay. I, it seemed very overt to me. Okay, well, it was very overt. <laughs> And you think, why? Like, who's he fighting? If you think about the period, I'm not sure. This is the period of, of Vietnam. I, I mentioned Rebel Without a Cause during, because I just said, when did Rebel Without a Cause come out? Which was... Uh, Ten tw- years earlier. Twelve years earlier, 55, and yeah. this was 67. Um, and the reason that I mentioned that was because I think James Dean in that and Paul Newman in this have to be comparable as kind of really iconic figures of anti-authoritarian rebellion. But I'm not sure that you're necessarily supposed to see nobility in Luke's rebellion here. I think it's just a, a freedom of spirit and and enacting the way he does because he can. And that in itself is just the rebellion. He's happy to be who he is. And there's that classic line, which we both remarked upon, what we have here is a failure to communicate, mm. which speaks to a different uh, speaks to like how two different groups of people like the counterculture youth and the well, authoritarian elders of I the, mean the phrase know. the phrase became a cultural phenomenon I mean it became mm-hmm. you know a, a phrase in the culture yeah I mean mm-hmm. certainly growing up you know the sense of you know what we have here is a failure to communicate it was something that was used intergenerationally or you know, against authority or between groups or, you know, this thing about a failure to communicate. Mm. Yeah. But in this in this sense, what does it mean and in the light of what? Right? So actually, there's no attempt to communicate. You know, there's <laughs> only an attempt to kind of control and so on. And the idea is, you know, that Luke will not be, that he is, like you said, free, you know, internally. And you think, like, I mean, I, I just don't know what it's saying. So is it saying... You know, that it's worth it for you to be beaten up like that just so that you're free internally. But free internally in the light of what? What does it mean to be free internally? You Mm. know, have you got the other prisoners more, you know, (laughs) food or more freedom or more... So so actually within a Christian thing, it would just be like a kind of, you know, you're you're proud and stubborn and you deserve to get kicked even more. (laughs) Right? Like... (laughs) I mean, I just don't... I just don't understand, you know, why um, <laughs> resistance to authority is in itself a good. Yeah? Okay, boomer. Well, I mean, I don't think it's <laughs> well, a boomer I- thing. I mean, I think <laughs> resistance to authority in the light of a liberation project, sure. Mm. Or in the light of some common goal, sure. But just resistance I to think it. it. I think like, it is for its own sake, though. I mean... Think about what you know about Luke as in the context of the film as a character. Very little, right? You see his mother at one point, he's ill, and there's this thing about how she had hopes for him that I guess he didn't live up to. Well, it seemed to come out of that conversation. But really, he seems to kind of come from nowhere. He starts off committing this petty crime drunkenly, is happy to be arrested and go to prison, makes a few escape attempts, keeps coming back. But there is, there feels like there is no higher goal. And actually, if you think about that specific line, what we have here is failure to communicate, it comes up twice, right? So it comes up the first time when the officer says Mm -hmm. it to him, when they're just, like, giving up on him and trying to break him. And right at the end, when he goes to the church and he's basically sold out, I think, Mm. that, you know, to me the implication was that Dragnet, the older guy who becomes, like, a follower, uh, has told them where he is. Like, I think that's a Judas thing, really. Sure. 
Um, so the cops come there and Dragnet says to him, if you come quietly, everything will be okay. And what he does is open the window and defies it. Mm. really for no reason what we have here is failure to communicate he says mocking them mm. and gets shot in the neck for it and I suppose maybe he doesn't expect to be murdered for that but he is resisting for no other reason it seems to me than that is preferable to falling in line well but you see to me then A it's wrong there are other options I mean if the message is that you could be free internally that you could you know be free in your mind, yeah. Mm. Uh, well, actually, you know, you can be free in your mind without getting beaten up for it every day and getting broken down and kind of suffering physically. You know, but the whole point of being free in your mind is that you don't have to show the other what you think. In fact, showing the other what you think is stupid. Why? Because <laughs> it gets you beaten up and broken down for no reason. But maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe doing that is the point. You know, like, well, it's, it's, the po- it's the point in this film, right, which is yeah. why I think it's dumb, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. you know, um, any kind of survival, I think, be it in prison or in, in the workplace or in politics or whatever, you know, kind of, you know, obviously you want to cultivate independent thinking and sometimes you are enslaved in the sense that you've got to constantly be doing things that you don't want. And of course you can, you know, be doing those things you don't want and be thinking something that is not an institutional yeah, mm-hmm. way of thinking. But you don't show your hand, you know, <laughs> if, if the result of showing your hand is just to get beaten, mm. right? Like, I mean, there is something both masochistic and just plain stupid about that. And that the film is advocating it is, to me, yeah, part of what I'm questioning. Sure. But, you know. Do you think it's a fantasy then? You know, because you were saying like the phrase, uh, what we have is failure to communicate, caught on and became a cultural meme of the time, you know. Yes. Um, I did, it's definitely it, a fantasy. It spoke to people. People wanted to be cool Han Luke. People saw something in him that they yes. loved and admired, maybe. Yes. Um, you know, and it is 1967, so to be anti-establishment and, you know, uh, um, and so on, you <laughs> Fine. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, that guy who was just arrested in the Capitol riots, yeah, who was then kind of jailed and was bawling because, you know, he couldn't get organic food in jail. (laughs) So, you know, this film brought that to mind, yeah, because, Mm. of course, the whole thing is to be cool, for sure. Yeah. Right. And to say no. Right. Yeah, and so that is a fantasy and it's a desirable fantasy, though I'm questioning why is it desirable? Like... You know, resistance to the dominant ideology is desirable. You know, but the resistance at the cost of your life, what's desirable about that? <laughs> I mean, I suppose it has a romance. But not to me. Here's a question. Um, as a gay man, you are basically born anti-authoritarian. You're born against the kind of prevailing cultural and societal acceptance and I think you you definitely would have been born like an outsider right yeah for most of my life anyway and I think still yeah and so you grew up uh, or I'm asking this did you grow up kind of not being able to look at the kind of behavior that Luke shows as you know it's not an option it's not fun actually the reason that you're saying why isn't he more tactical about about what he wants to do is because you kind of had to like like getting beaten up was something that actually happens. Happened, right? <laughs> and, and it happens you know, had now, to deal with. In fact, 
um, you know, through your... I've, I've had uh, friends who have been beaten just uh, uh, on her street. And they weren't. Uh, the point is, they weren't choosing to behave in a way that would rile the cops. They were what riled the cops. Yes. And so, is that something that that kind of? I I just think that the film, to me, is is fake, you know, because it kind of it posits both something that to me isn't desirable, mm. you know, and it isn't even smart. So you know, yes, to to think freely, yes, you know, to defy authority, yes, you know. To be shown to be defying authority, mm. yeah, when the only outcome is, you know, you being beaten. Yeah. Hello? <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, it feels like, you know, it's only someone who's so privileged that they've never had to make those choices yeah. that can, you know, enjoy that fantasy. That's basically where I'm going. Uh, it's a fantasy of the privileged. And actually someone who has not had the, the kind of options that someone like Luke has doesn't see it that way doesn't see the, the romance in it so much well see that I, th- I don't think the problem is Luke I think the problem is the way that the the film conceptualises Luke yeah in the film he's shown as a small town boy incredibly good looking charismatic popular a leader mm. yeah you know he's been to the army kind of uh, won all these medals Clearly, so anti-authoritarian, he came out lower, the, a little lower level than he started. I think came in and went out a private, was it? Yeah, right. was promoted to sergeant and came out a, a private. Yeah. Right. So there's a sense there that you know he doesn't want those kinds of honors or whatever. The whole point of the scene with the mother is that he was loved, mm-hmm. and and then of course the whole film is like this hint of like you know black people and black farmers who clearly have very little yeah and are mm. clearly in a much different position vis-a-vis you know all the white people so you know on the one hand like you, you can look at it oh he's got nothing to lose actually you can also look at it, well you know kind of he's got a lot he's got a lot of other options yeah exactly right you know so there's something kind of clearly self-destructive yeah i mean so there's something admirable. He will keep going. That's you know that's really good that he will keep going. But why does the film want you to valorize this? You know, being true to yourself in a show-offy way that gets you killed. Yeah, well, that's the fantasy, I guess. The nihilism, like like the kind of people who are actually in real life, like Luke, who have what appears to be pretty normal kind of white privilege of the time, mm. you know, wouldn't behave like that because they actually do have too much to lose. Yes. And the fantasy is in what is in feeling like, you know, he's doing it for you. Yes. You know, if I could act like that, or I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there was clearly a fantasy. It was a very, very popular film, kind of like a landmark film and, a, you know, a film central, central to Paul Newman's career. Though, of course, I mean, and I love Paul Newman and don't get me wrong, but he almost defines establishment, right? You know, he's a middle-class kid whose father ran a dry goods shop, you know, that was very successful, right? So, like, totally middle-class. Went to what did his stint in the army mm. or in the navy? Kind of, you know, came out properly. Yeah, kind of got the GI Bill. You know, uh, after his father died, went back to work in the business, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, he went to university. Blah blah. Then, when he went on his career, yeah, 
he uh, he got married, he got divorced, he got married, he had a long marriage, he was charitable, yeah, he was a good person, he contributed to the community. He is, yeah. you know, by by movie star terms, completely establishment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was he a movie star by this point? Oh, in, in 67? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. He, he was a movie star, like, from the mid-50s on, from, you know, somebody up there likes me, or... Uh, from the Terrace, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, those were all 50s films, and he was a star by then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, I think mid-50s, late late 50s. Yeah. Uh, so there's a sense of, of the establishment playing at counterculture in this. Well, and it's almost a definition of Hollywood, right? Because yeah. Well, yeah. You know, Hollywood is not going to rock the boat, that's for sure, right? No. So but it I, is going to try and latch on to yeah. what's good, what's popular, what's making money. Yeah, and what and fantasies that can be created. Though you know, I think Paul Newman was a liberal, and I'm sure he had, you know, liberal mm. intentions and so on. But there's something about the way that it's conceptualized that just doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, and maybe I'm not articulating it very well because you know what I'm recounting now is niggles. Yeah. So on the one hand, you know, on the one hand you think oh it is cool, but then you think anybody who thinks that's cool is not very bright. Like you know. <laughs> Yeah. Here's um here's a, a, a niggle possibly, um I don't really like at all the um depiction of prison life, it's fairly cosy really. I mean you think well, we said right at the start like imagine Steve McQueen as in Steve McQueen now not the actor mm. the director, you know his version of this well it'd be Hunger I suppose yes. you know I remember thinking how brutal that was yes um you know there's no there's no brutality well I'll temper that a bit because there is brutality. He gets beaten a lot, Luke, um, and he's broken. I mean, he's forced to dig his own grave, so he goes through some awful punishment, and maybe some of it comes across as a little tamer these days because there's a remove. You're watching a film from the 60s. It doesn't feel in your face the way mm. it might today. Um, but also, these prisoners seem to have a lot of downtime. They're spending all their time eating eggs and playing cards. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, for me, the main problem is... That what you're be- basically being shown is a brutal system of state-condoned slavery. That is what you're being shown, mm-hmm. right? And the film makes it look very pretty, mm. right? You have these magnificent sunsets, kind of, you know, these glowing fields, these glowing bodies, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, actually, something that is meant... There's no in harshness the- in it. Well, I think the film... It's trying to make it seem harsh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, the constant work and yeah, and so yeah. on and so forth. But actually, it's just failing. I, it, it's, yeah. So, so there's a difference between what it's trying to tell you and what it's showing you. Mm. Yeah. Kind of what it's showing you is almost like too pretty. Right. <laughs> and what it's trying to tell you is that it's, it's quite horrible. Yeah. And didactic and pointless. Right. All these men just... You know, why are they clearing these hedges and the roads in the middle of nowhere? They could let it grow, Hmm. right? Like it's pointless labor, but it's very hard labor, right? So I think it's trying to tell you what it's showing and what it's telling are different. And actually, that's a problem in cinema. (laughs) It just, it makes it seem appealing in a way that it shouldn't. Uh, I want to think a little bit about Rebel Without a Cause because I think, well, you know Rebel Without a Cause better than I do. And so I really want to ask you, do you think there is a link particularly between the two main characters and and what uh, James Dean's character, I forget the name. Jim. Jim. 
the way he behaves in Rebel Without a Cause, do you think that's similar to Luke in Cool Hand Luke? Do, what are the differences? No, because, I mean, I think the thing about Rebel Without a Cause is, you know, he's struggling with notions of what it is to be a man and what it is to be a proper man. And he sees his father completely beaten down mm. and being a very role model. So he's struggling to do the right thing. Yeah, and, and you know, and he's meeting all this resistance, you know, from his peers and, mm-hmm. yeah, people aren't letting him be, right, and do the right thing. You know, but that is a film about a lack of parental love and a young man trying to figure out what it is to be a good man, mm. yeah. Luke uh, isn't trying to figure out anything. No. Mm. I mean, he's almost like Pavlov's dog. That's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's just, you know, maybe I'm not understanding something about the film, but, you know, it does feel like Pavlov's dog in the sense that, you know, the boxing match with yeah. uh, George Kennedy. I mean, you know, he gets up and he gets up and he gets up. And you then go, why are you getting up? Right. Mm. Because you've got to. Yeah. Because that's who he is. That's, that's who he, he is. is. Yeah. But there isn't, this, there isn't enough of a sense to me. It feels like a choice of his as opposed to an, kind of an innate um, expression of who he is. And it's a choice that he uh, basically disobeys at the end and gets himself killed. And he always has this smile on his face that's like he knows what he's doing um, and he's happy with himself. And and there's something nihilistic to it that's not really very appealing. Like, But maybe it is to some people and maybe it was at the time because in the face of, I suppose, particularly Vietnam, um, acting out in any way seemed appealing, seemed like the thing to do. Seemed like maybe, maybe to some people feel like the only thing you could do and it's something that you should... But it always comes across as a choice in this. The thing is, so just to change the subject a little bit, mm. is that I can completely understand why the film was a hit. Yes, so can I. Yeah, it looks mashing. You know, it, it is so cool in a very superficial sense. You know, Paul Newman is so attractive. And, um, and I mean attractive, you know, not just in a sexual sense. Yeah, the personality, that's a very attractive person. Mm. He's very attractive. Uh, I personally don't find him sexy, but that's just my own taste. But he's very appealing and charming, yeah. Um, and it's got an amazing supporting cast, yeah, of, uh, you know, Dennis Hopper. You were mentioning Rebel Without a Cause. Well, Dennis Hopper's in this also. Um, and George Kennedy won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. George Kennedy, Harry Dean Stanton is in it. And it's got a whole bunch of supporting actors that you know. Wayne Rogers from MASH later on. You know, it's just got an amazing cast. Whoever was the casting director for that, you know, did an amazing uh, job. So, you know, I completely understand why uh, the film was a success, why it kind of um, connected and Mm. helped create the zeitgeist of that time. I mean, 67 is Hype Ashbury and... You're getting the rise of, of hippies and the counterculture and all of that. So the film mm-hmm. kind of absolutely fits in squarely with that and gives a very striking kind of role model for a kind of an attitude. Yeah, It's but extremely it's, funny as well. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and a lot of it is in Paul Newman's faces, his expression. Sometimes he's Sometimes he's gormless in a hilarious way particularly during the egg scene where yeah. they're just shoving eggs in his mouth round and round again and he's wonderful through that and you know he's never he's never so self-effacing to the point where he lets himself be sort of ugly um, but he lets himself be kind of sent up comically yeah 
which he's is definitely lovely. one of the boys, yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, throughout and game, you know, and that's all kind of um, very attractive. And um, you were also pointing out when the opening credits were going on, Conrad Hall, um, yeah, as a cinematographer, and Lalo Schifrin doing the music. So yes. you were saying like this is an all-star thing throughout. Yeah, it's behind the scenes or under the line, you know, all-star. I mean, you know, Conrad Hall is one of the great cinematographers. Of all time, and you really see it in this film. It's beautifully, beautifully shot. Maybe all star with the exception of the director, who actually yeah. neither of us knew the name of. Well, actually, I should have known the name because, I mean, in my cinema going years, he reappears, and so some of his films are films that you you read about or you you know, mm. yeah, without the, them necessarily being any good or. You know, but things like the April Fools. You mentioned April Fools. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that won an Oscar, maybe, or was nominated for Oscars. I think Jack Lemmon is in it, maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah it's Jack Lemmon and Catherine Deneuve. Let me see if um, I can't see anything about awards. Okay, uh, and um, also Brew Baker. I remember that was a prison film with Robert Redford. That was a big hit. Mm-hmm. You know, in the mid eighties. Oh, Voyage of the Damned. I remember, but just because it was an all-star film, but I think that was a big flop. Amityville Horror. Amityville Horror with Margot Kidder, I, I loved as a teenager. But, you know, those are almost like his biggest hits, right? <laughs> yeah. This guy's had think... five films you've heard of. That's more okay. than most people. Five films you've heard of. This is his greatest hit. And it's not, I'm saying it's not very good. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not bad. But, you know, I don't think it's one of the great classics of cinema. Let me put it that way. Yeah. it's There's something about how it captures... That will capture the tone and the feeling of the time that, that you feel doesn't translate now. Hmm. It's funny to to find it so um, thin, really. We mentioned the Jesus stuff, and it's quite Jesusy. Um, and you keep noticing throughout, uh, you know, like when he when he's eating all the eggs, mm. he winds up on the table in this crucifix pose, even with his legs crossed mm. over each other like Jesus on the crucifix. Right at the end, uh, after he's died. Um, and being sold out by Judas in inverted I mean, it is, it is really that Jesus, oh God, why have you deserted me speech? Yeah. <laughs> um, why hast thou forsaken me? Yeah. Um, which you think Jesus really would know. Like, I mean, isn't he in on the planet? But, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, then right at the very end, where they're all kind of eulogizing him and talking about what a great man he was. And he's, and he's basically found this cabal of followers without even meaning to, you know, this, uh, his, his disciples who will tell his story, mm. I guess. And the very last shot is the crossroads where they're working, and then he's superimposed on top of that, like a crucifix. And then the photo that you're seeing superimposed is that photo of him with the two girls that mm. was faked. And they've ripped it up and taped it back together. And so the tape, that looks like a crucifix as well. Mm. So he's, he's, he's in a crucifix sandwich. At the, <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the film, like he couldn't, he couldn't sort of be screaming more at you that... He was this. He, he's this great revolutionary figure, and and he's inspired people and that kind mm. of thing. Um, and I, I find it so thin. Mm. What more is there to him that you go? Okay, I've noticed that you're that you're drawing this this likeness. That you're doing it through through cinematic techniques, as well as allegory, I guess, or kind of characters representing things. But what does it add, add up to? Mm. I can't find more in it. it it's it's a, I mean, so it's clearly a film that in many ways has been very well thought through or, or, or um, thought through to a great degree, let's say. 
But I don't think it's it's the work of someone who uh, understands complex issues mm. or has a complex understanding of even human beings, right? It's a very superficial film, even though a great deal of thought yeah, has, has gone uh, into it. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the reasons in which it's also evident is the representation of women in the film, right? Which you basically have two cameos, both very striking. One by Joe Van Fleet, who's fantastic. Yeah, who really is like, you know, the Virgin Mary or something. Yeah, like uh, someone who's had a very hard life. There's a suggestion that she's also kind of lived a cabaret life, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, very loving towards her son. So anyway, that's the mother, mm -hmm. right? And it is very much a kind of a Mary Magdalene type of, yeah, a she, reformed prostitute who shows love or something like and that. And also she says about the dad, because he's never met his dad, and she says he's not the type to stick around, which, I mean, that is really a good description of God. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you have, you know, that picture of the mother, and then you have the picture of the young girl showing, pushing her breasts against the window. Right? Yeah. That's... Teasing them, cleaning the car. Yeah. Which you think, okay, in a way, fair enough. I mean, in itself, it's not a problem. Yeah. But when you think, yeah. Well, actually, there's another woman in the film. Can you remember who it is? Uh, give me a second. Um, no. It's a black woman putting up the washing. Right. Yeah. And she's filmed. So it's a long shot. So what you're really meant to be seeing is the farms and so on. And like all yeah. the places that Luke still has to get to, right? And what you see is like this cowering black woman. Right. Yeah. So uh, those are, yeah, the three uh, representations. And I think it's kind of, it's just telling really, you know, it's, uh, uh, um, you could have done more. Yeah, you could have given some, some you could have given the girl pressing her tits against the window a line, right? <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you, what would she have said? I mean, she 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 does. I mean, I know what you mean. It's very very thin. But I mean, what would she have said with a line like, "What does? What could she have said with a line that she doesn't say with that smile that tells you that she knows what she's doing?" Well, you know? that is the point of her character. That's the point of that scene. What more would you have got out of? Well, the thing is that you could have gotten that and more. You know, you could have kind of indicated that might be her only fun. You know, kind <laughs> of maybe she's also enslaved in some other way or. You know, kind of, maybe she's got a husband who's not, you know, kind of satisfying. You yeah. can indicate a whole lot more than just... Because she's there for a long time. That's a five-minute scene or... Yeah. A couple of minutes, yeah. But it's a significant... It's, it's like the whole point of the scene is ogling her. Yes. And, and well, ogling her and having a lot of fun at watching the men ogling her and being completely impotent to... Yeah, thing. but you see, again, all of those things could have been done just more complexly. And you wouldn't have had to make it the focus, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, you could have put in, like, a gay character or, yeah, amongst all the prisoners, right? There was bound to be at least one or two. Yeah, it's kind of... I didn't even see it hinted at. Did you? Um, no, but to be fair... Well, I'd say two things. First of all, with the kind of thinness with the way these characters are drawn... Aren't you pleased there was not a gay character in there? Well, I'm not complaining. Big would have been from. I'm not complaining, but I'm just making the point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I that agree. this is a film that lacks texture. And and the second point is, there may not be a gay character, 
but it is eye candy for gay men for a while. It's a sweaty old film. It's true. Lots of bodies. But again, you could have shown that in different ways. I mean, I, I suppose the only thing I want to argue is, you know, that it's a pretty film. It's kind of superficially cool, but it lacks texture and it lacks depth. And mm. it's, you know, it's not a great film. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. Uh, yeah, a historical icon, really. Mm. And you can see why. Um, That's important to underline. You can still see why it had the impact that it had. And it is still enjoyable, I would argue. Yeah. It's just not great. <laughs> <laughs> And we mentioned the director, but I don't think I got to the point where I gave his name, which is Stuart Rosenberg. Yes. That's the name that we didn't recognise, and we had to look up, and then you went, oh, yes, all these films that I do remember. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) My mind is so shit. Uh, Oh, no, there's no... I mean, to be fair, there's no... I don't think there's any really good reason that you would know the guy's filmography off by heart. Yes, because, in fact, of the films that I did see, I didn't, I didn't think very highly of any of them. So, for example, Amityville Horror was, you know, I remember going to see it, and, you know, and it was exciting, and it was Margot Kidder after she'd been in Superman or whatever. But I also don't remember particularly liking it. It wasn't that I thought, oh, this is the greatest film ever made. Right? It's just I remember going to see it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it was... It was a it was a hit, but then a lot of horror. It was it was a, a big hit, massive hit. It was a surprise hit, actually. It was a it was a big hit. But yeah. um, yeah, here we go. It well, this is Wikipedia's sort of introduction. It grossed over eighty million dollars on a five million dollar budget. That was a huge amount in seventy nine. This was going on to become one of the highest grossing independent films of all time. It received mostly negative reviews from critics, though some film scholars have considered it a classic of the horror genre as film scholars I want to do. Yes. I added the last bit. <laughs> Every horror film's a, a horror classic these days. Uh-huh. Anyway, um, so shall we wrap it up here? Yes, yeah. So, I mean, I th- it's worth seeing. Oh, very yeah, nice. I mean, we've criticised it a lot um, for, for being thin and a little bit dumb and so on, but still it was enjoyable. I'm very glad side, yes. And I'm glad to have seen it after 20 years of waiting to see it. You know, yes. <laughs> um, and the eggs bit was as good as as I hoped it would be. Hmm. You you claimed when he said I can eat fifty eggs in an hour. You claimed you could. Yes. So I'm willing to see that happen. Well, you know, <laughs> I saw that you've been taking bets on Facebook, but I'm, I haven't agreed to participate. <laughs> but we'll try and make it happen, uh, and if we do, that will go on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway. Thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, YouTube and Google Podcasts. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Bye-bye. <laughs>